Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. Uh, my name is Rick Archer, and uh, this is interview number 71 in the series. My guest this week is Michael Hall, Dr. Michael Hall, PhD, who is a psychologist living in Binghamton, New York. And in just a second, I'll have Michael, Michael introduce himself um, in terms of a brief biological, biographical sketch, and then we'll, we'll get into much greater detail. But I just wanted to mention, in case those listening don't make it to the end of the interview, that I just... Um, added a new page to the website yesterday, batgap.com, which is a list of all the upcoming interviews uh, so that you can see who's coming, uh, you can submit questions to guests that I'll be interviewing, and maybe you'll think of new people that you'd like me to interview. So uh, welcome, Michael. Thank you. Yeah, it's good to be here. Yeah. Thanks for talking with me. Yeah, um, I've been listening to you as I do with most of my guests all week long, maybe five hours worth of so, or so I've listened to, and uh, I must say I I find I uh, feel a lot of affinity with the things you say. You know, um, it's like not that my perspective on things is any sort of arbiter of truth, but uh, some for some reason a lot of the things you say just resonate with my, my experience and my understanding of things. So. Um, this should be, won't be an argumentative interview in any case. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> That's okay, too, but yeah. So uh, why don't we start by just, you know, having you give us a brief brief sketch of who you are, what you do, you know, just a paragraph or two, and uh, then we'll, we'll flesh it out. Yeah. Um, well, I'm a clinical psychologist, and um, so I'm not a, I'm not a, spiritual teacher full-time, although I do try to convey this understanding that uh, emerges um, in me. It's been a long, slow process. I guess maybe, maybe it is for everybody, but uh, you want a little background and biography, I guess. So, uh, you know, I went to college in the 60s, and um, I happened to read The Three Pillars of Zen when it first came out in 67. And by then, I'd already been searching in, in some way, although there wasn't a lot to do in the 60s because uh, very few books were out. Uh, there was no YouTube. There was, <laughs> there was nothing. So I wound up reading things like the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita and Evelyn Rose's book on mysticism and just, just original sources is about all I could find. And then The Three Pillars of Zen by Roshi Philip Kaplow came out, and that was like, wow, this is this is this is happening right now actual western people uh, are practicing Zen Buddhism and coming to Kinsho or awakening and in fact uh, it's happening in Rochester New York and uh, so that gave me a lot of inspiration and hope and um, you know then I went ahead and went to graduate school in clinical psychology at Indiana University and got a PhD in wound up in Rochester uh, doing a two-year postdoctoral fellowship and, and I think partly because I was aware of the Rochester Zen Center and that was 73 to 75 I was there but <clears throat> I was I was actually too shy and anxious to go to the Zen Center huh. <laughs> so I walked around it every day interesting <laughs> I lived about four or five blocks from it and I would go on these long walks every day and walk right by the Rochester Zen Center. And this went on for most of two years. Huh. <laughs> I finally went to a one-day uh, introductory talk there that 
they gave Roshi Capital gave and uh, came away with with a, a headache and, and not much else um, because you know they, they they make you sit in this very rigid posture and they hit you on the back with an oak stick and, and <laughs> <laughs> it all seemed very difficult and I was I was very tense and uh, very anxious and <clears throat> I was a new father and um, anyway, I didn't really start to practice in Buddhism until I moved to Binghamton, New York, when I, I went to work at the University Counseling Center. There was my first real job, uh, which I managed to avoid getting until I was in my late 20s. And uh, I met a man there who was a psychology professor named Craig Twentyman, who was a very serious, hardcore Zen practitioner at Rochester. And he had created a, a very dedicated group. Uh, of meditation meditators there in Binghamton and I started joining him like I'd go six to eight in the morning and I could walk to his house from my house in the snow which usually is snowing in Rochester and in Binghamton but uh, I actually did this and I don't know why I did it I just did it and I you know when I look back I don't know why why you don't you know whatever you tell yourself is usually a story so mostly you don't know why you do things but um I started sitting with this group on a regular basis, and um, I noticed very quickly that all kinds of psychosomatic symptoms I had at that point just started to disappear. Hmm. Um, actually, for me, the most interesting thing is that every time I would sit, and we would sit for two hours um, in 35-minute rounds of sitting with five or ten minutes of walking meditation in between, uh, I, I would sit and suddenly I'd be aware of being very angry and I hadn't been aware of that before I started sitting but as soon as I'd go into the zazen posture and start breathing and trying to you know just just pay attention to the breathing I would, I would be aware of being very angry and this would last for about an hour hmm. in other words it would last all the way through the first round of sitting through the walking meditation and then sometime in the second round of sitting it would just sort of go away and so that that was interesting <clears throat> and I, I also noticed that when I first started sitting I had this lump in my throat which I didn't know what it was but I, I mean now we just say it was a symptom of tension and, but it, it quickly disappeared and so these kinda these kinda things caught my eye and, and made me want to keep doing this and um, what were you doing during the actual sitting were you <clears throat> well, as, what was the nature of the practice I had been to <clears throat> this one-day workshop at the Rochester Zen Center, and they taught uh, counting your breaths. Okay, you know, you so that's in, what you're doing. Breathe out two, breathe mm -hmm. in three, breathe out four, go to ten, start over. Mm -hmm. That's what I was doing, just a basic counting practice. And, um, you know, over, over maybe six months, um, I noticed that, uh, you know, gradually the anger thing would only last a few minutes and then it wasn't there at all I'd start to sit and I wasn't angry and um, and I'd been told at that time also that I was borderline hypertensive uh, mm -hmm. you know my blood pressure was like 140 over 90 and I was thin and, and pretty you, fit and, and young and very young 28 yeah. maybe and um, so one day I was walking through the mall in Binghamton and they had these automated blood pressure cuffs where you put a I think 75 cents in it and it takes your blood pressure and mm -hmm. it was like 110 over 70 in the middle of the day and I thought well that's interesting huh. and did so you I, have a tendency toward anger outside of meditation no no I don't think anybody would think of me as an angry person I was always um, probably suppressed 
resentment and anger, even suppressed my own awareness of it. And it didn't blow up every now and then? It, it, you were, yeah. Never, no, 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 no. Interesting. No, it's totally um, inhibited in that regard. Mm -hmm. uh, but like I said, I, w I was someone who liked to please people, who wanted to get along, didn't like conflict, and probably would not have even known how irritated, resentful, and angry I was much yeah. of the time. So, but I couldn't, I couldn't help but face it when I'm sitting there being still and can't move and can't distract myself. Right. So that, that, that's why I kept doing it really. Stuff like that happened, these physiological things. And uh, this went on for four or five years. And um, then interestingly, there's about 17 or 18 people in this group. They all got up and moved to Rochester except for me and Craig. And we just sat, continued to sit there in, in Binghamton. And um, I went back into another one-day thing at Rochester, and but then in, uh, my marriage ended, and I was living in this little apartment by myself, feeling miserable. And uh, uh, I had met Roshi Capolo at that point, but I hadn't become a student of his. And and I was reading in uh, the Three Pillars is in the Heart Sutra, and these lines: "Form is only emptiness; emptiness only form," uh, and something just like that out of nowhere um, I just went and laid down in my bed and laid in the dark and, and went into this uh, really profound I don't know non-dual experience of a complete disappearance of the of the sense of me or any self-consciousness or, or anyone at all and yet there was this pure awareness that was just delightful and this went on for some unknown period of time and then I fell asleep woke up the next morning and it was back to being me again <laughs> and didn't like that of course but uh, knew something big had happened so I called the Rochester Zen Center and said can I talk to somebody <laughs> about something and uh, they put uh, Bowden on the line Bowden is now the the abbot the Roshi at Rochester and uh, and he was very nice and said well I think you need to come and talk to Roshi Capital about this, so I did, and essentially at that point I began serious Zen training, going to first two-day, then four-day, then seven-day meditation retreats, and and that was um, that was very instrumental. And then I had other different kinds of awakening experiences in these retreats, and uh, then you know eventually Roshi, you know, sort of approved. And Zen they have all these ways of testing the depth of your understanding and sort of approve this understanding uh, just, you know, as, a, as, as Kensho or what you might call an initial awakening. But mm -hmm. then I went on and did all these koans, hundreds of koans, you know, these, these um, Zen puzzles. And, but I, I felt like after a couple of years of drama and excitement and, you know, all these experiences, everything went dry. Mm. And uh, I was still passing Cohen's but I had no clue what they really meant and I didn't know what the hell I was doing so uh, how do you pass a Cohen I mean let's say somebody says what is the sound of one hand <clears throat> clapping I mean you, you have to it's not an intellectual it's not conceptual it's not it's often not verbal it has right. to it has to occur like you have to in effect be it you have to be the solution or the answer uh, and, and then you just know when you have got it uh, half the time you don't know, oh. but the, you know it in retrospect, but the Roshi will see it immediately and say, okay, that's good, go to the next one. Interesting. Huh. Yeah, so it's, um, it's a very dynamic, dramatic, um, intense, and brief kind of thing. 
Um, he, you know, and, and a, a real Zen teacher can often tell the minute you walk in the room in the private meeting if you've got it or not. Huh. And um, they, they must be very perceptive. Very perceptive. And you're in a state, you're in a, you know, in a retreat setting where all the senses are highly attuned. You're in total silence and uh, it's very intense and focused. So, I mean, the whole thing with the training there when I went there was to provoke awakening and and uh, create an optimal sort of setting for that. And it was rigorous and physically and emotionally grueling, but it did seem to succeed at doing that for a lot of people. So, but then I went through, like I said, this dry spell and I kind of, my, my, my second wife um, uh, got pregnant, had a miscarriage and I had to cancel a seven day retreat because I just didn't want to leave her. And I never went back after that. So I was in the late, that's 88 maybe. And then I went through like, 15 years of um, normal life, you could say, being a psychologist. Uh, we did have another baby in 1990, who's now 20, I'll be 21, and so I raised my, my kids and worked. And um, Were you still meditating during that time? No, no, just, mostly. Just living life. Just living life. I, I would say I gave up on the idea of what you might call uh, continuous awakening. Mm -hmm. I'd had these experiences, so I believe completely in the in you might say the truth of the teaching of Zen Buddhism and but um, you know I thought I just wasn't going to have a chance to get further in this lifetime because I had to live like a normal life as a householder and um, and I wasn't going to abandon that and you know I, th I think that's kind of the implication there that uh, to really go as deep as you need to go you have to be a monastic yeah at least in some traditions yeah, um, so, you know, I'd read about, you know, people like, uh, you know, Wang Po or Wei Ning or, you know, Dogen or many of these Zen masters in ancient China and Japan who talked about much deeper levels of awakening than anything I could relate to, but I just didn't think that was in the cards for me. And uh, so there was some kind of struggle with all of that, but I just, I would say I gave up on it. And then... In 2002, for no reason whatsoever that I can identify, I'm sitting in my office and I had a book open in front of me by a guy named David Hawkins, and I, I think I might have been reading it, I don't know, and it just all of a sudden, like that, everything fell away, and and then that's never um, gone away. Amazing. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah it's, it's interesting. I mean, you hadn't, you kind of like put totally. it behind you, you hadn't been meditating or anything else, and all of a sudden, bingo. Right. I mean... Maybe five years before that, I'd started a meditation group, mm -hmm. but that was like once a week for Sporadic, an hour. Sporadic, yeah. It was once a week for an hour, and I led that for five years, but it was just, I don't know what it was. It didn't, it didn't, it's just like I just like to do it, so that was, but no, I wasn't practicing, I wasn't doing anything. I was reading a book, and that's it, and yeah. I hadn't read that much about it either. So when you say uh, everything fell away, let's let's delve into that experience a little bit. What exactly happened or didn't happen? You know, it's uh, it's not an, that one wasn't an experience. I mean, the other ones were experiences, and they were right. that you know I could tell you about them in detail, and they were dramatic and interesting. And mm -hmm. this one, I would say, nothing happened. I mean, there was no there was no experience. There was just a ceasing uh, of something. It just stopped, and um, what just stopped? Whatever this 
is whatever I thought this was. <laughs> whatever <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be persnickety here. Whatever this, you thought what was. <laughs> I guess you, I, in, I put it in language as the sense of me, the sense okay. of I, the sense of an identity that is continuous. Um, that just stopped. It just ended. So as of that moment, you have had no sense of me, I, identity. Well, I, I wouldn't, say, wouldn't say it in that absolute sense, but I'd say it nearly that, nearly that clearly. And I've, you know, I've given a lot of thought and, and done a lot of work with trying to um, identify the moments that there is some seeming identity with the old programming and belief systems. And when that comes up, now it just jumps out at me. And I usually, I, you know, can sort of see it and catch it. And so that's become then my practice is just... Mm -hmm. uh, these, uh, I think they're called vasanas in the Hindu tradition. Yeah, these vasanas. Vasanas, these deeply ingrained automatic patterns still arise, you know, because there's mm -hmm. still the conditioning, there's still the ego, there's still, as long as there's a body and there's life, there's, there's this conditioning that continues. And I think a lot of it is universal. I mean, it's completely impersonal. It's not about me personally. It's just uh, human beings are, are constantly being conditioned and so, but yeah, there's no underlying, there's no sense of an eye at all. There's no, it's never been, never come back and um, thank God. And, <laughs> and I don't, it's like you have this sense of, I didn't do anything. I didn't, I didn't earn. And then, so then, you know, I immediately started talking about grace because, uh, we, you know, I was raised in a Christian tradition. I turned my back on it when I was 16 and never looked back and, but then, you know, when I went through this thing in 2002, I, I suddenly was very comfortable with the words of Christ. I went back and started reading the New Testament, and the meaning of some of these passages would just leap off the page at me, and it was lovely, beautiful stuff. And so, but it seemed like grace, you know, just for no reason whatsoever, and undeserved, you know, mm -hmm. boom, you know. Yeah, I mean, in listening to your talks uh, over the last week, uh, you know, I heard you say that, you know, you give uh, legitimacy to the idea of making efforts, doing practices, and so on. Mm -hmm. But but crossing of the final threshold doesn't come about through any sort of effort. It's, right. It's, you know, maybe it's the momentum that the cart has gained and it just coasts over the goal or something. But yeah, yeah, maybe that's it. Uh... I, I think there's something to be said for a progressive, um, effortful, disciplined work at deconstructing the I, at deconstructing the sense of who you are. And um, I mean, I think that's valuable. It certainly increases the level of comfort and enjoyment in life. It makes you far easier to get along with. and. Um, you don't have as uh, you know you don't have as much of a negative reaction on, to other people and um, but this final step cannot be taken by anything that could possibly be called you mm -hmm. um, I mean the uh, the way I say it is the ego can't surrender itself right so like picking yourself up by your own bootstraps or something right uh, it, it's worth making the effort to pay attention and to lose interest in yourself but, and I do think maybe that event, it's like clearing out this underbrush and this thicket. And I think over time there is a progressive, may, maybe um, silence or presence that emerges. Um, but awakening itself happens of its own in some way that 
to me appears mysterious, and I don't know why, but I I did a lot of stuff that I thought probably helped. I think it was Suzuki Roshi who said, uh, awakening may be an accident, but spiritual practice makes you accident prone. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good way of saying it. Um, certainly in the Zen tradition, th there's a tremendous emphasis on work, hard work and responsibility and uh, commitment and discipline. I mean, these are words that people don't like to hear. They like to just think, well, it just happens. When I first started teaching, I kind of emphasized the grace end of it. And then I realized people misunderstood that to mean they don't have to do anything. Yeah. They can well, just sit there and it hits them like lightning or something. Right, but then it doesn't. Mm. <laughs> well, I mean, there are a lot of teachers and speakers out there who are saying just that. I, I know. In fact, know. They're, they're sort of emphasizing, don't seek. You know, seeking is an obstacle. Give it up. And to me, yeah. that's like a guy standing on a mountaintop describing his surroundings saying, don't climb, you know. Right, right, right. <laughs> that's exactly. Uh, that's the the exactly. view is beautiful. Don't right. bother climbing. Right. <laughs> Right, exactly. I mean, the way I look at it is you have to seek like a mad dog. In Zen, they say you have to, it's like you have to practice like your hair is on fire um, until it gives itself up. I mean, and it, you know, but it's to me another way of saying is like as long as, as the ego is sort of succeeding and it's goals you don't give up at the level you have to give up to mm -hmm. to die in this way but if the ego is banging its head against the wall as hard as it can over and over again and doesn't get anywhere really then some at some point it might just fall over and drop dead and be done with it and that's called awakening mm -hmm. you know uh, a total surrender and people people then think well I'm gonna surrender well you can't surrender you can't surrender at this level deliberately and consciously and willfully it has to be involuntary and you know there's you know there's lots of ways maybe of getting there um, and it doesn't have to be uh, what you call a spiritual practice it might, you know there are people I would say people like Eckhart Tolle and Byron Katie their practice was being profoundly depressed for years and years and years until they just couldn't stand it anymore and then gave up involuntarily and something snapped and you know certainly there are people who you can't make a practice out of that exactly well I'm not recommending it <laughs> <laughs> but I see people who do it all the time yeah. uh, or addictions of the similar you know people who, like David Hawkins and others who've just mm -hmm. been out of control addicts and but you know it's not a recommended practice but I took the route of a, of a recognized spiritual discipline that seemed to work for me immediately in some ways and so I just kept at it and I can't even you know I don't take any credit for that it just seemed to happen that way but I'm glad I'm glad it did well I think maybe as a psychologist you know you'd certainly understand that uh, or anyone would understand that you know conditioning is a real thing and mm -hmm. the vast majority of humanity are deeply conditioned and deeply sort of ingrained and entrenched in you right. know habitual ways of seeing and thinking and behaving and so on and um, you know all of that layers and layers and layers of that and I'm sure there's a there's a cycle there's a physiological component too it's mm -hmm. not just psychological right. uh, it, it really has the tendency to occlude uh, any sort of clarity of awareness, you know, right. it just gets covered over in layers of mud. And, That's right. Um, and you have to remove those layers. 
Right. Uh, and, and, that's, that, uh, and that's what spiritual practice will do. And it might seem absurd in a way. It's like a man standing in the middle of a mud puddle, and he says, how do I get out of here? And somebody outside the mud puddle says, well, take a step. And he says, well, you're asking me to put my foot in the mud again. <laughs> he says, yeah, yeah, okay, but you do that enough times, you get to the edge of the mud puddle, and then you're right. out. Right, right. Yeah, there's, there's, to me, there's, I call it the practice before and after awakening, and it's the same practice that um, it's paying attention to these habitual, chronic, automatic beliefs and assumptions about reality that take over and then lead to, you know, crazy thinking and behaving. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's certainly, to me, a myth that awakening completely clears the deck of all of this stuff. It, it doesn't. I mean, I, I, for me personally, a lot of it just disappeared in smoke with this last awakening but some things didn't and, and they're deeply conditioned and automatic and they come up over and over and over and you have to work at seeing them and understanding them and not buying into them and releasing them and that practice can be taught to people and I teach it to people all day in my office and <clears throat> with or without awakening I'm beginning to more like de-emphasize this awakening thing altogether because um, I mean, it's wonderful, it's important, but the goal here, I think, is to become an actual mature adult human being who makes a contribution to the world and isn't a jerk. Uh, <laughs> and you can do that without awakening. Uh, yeah, and, and, and there's you, some people who supposedly were awakened who didn't quite do that, you know, <laughs> who behaved like jerks. Absolutely. There's, there's lots of that. And, you know, the more you w know the spiritual marketplace, the more you're aware of it. And, and you know, I don't want to seem critical or judgmental. It's just a fact. It's real. And you can see it in yourself. You don't have to go looking at other people. You can see, right. you know, I can still be irritating and selfish and blah, blah, blah. And um, I think the chance with awakening, there's a much you have a chance to catch it. Whereas yeah. without some level of awakening or deep practice, it's so quick and automatic and it just grabs you by the throat. You don't even know it. You don't even know you're grabbed. Right. Right. Exactly. Now, you know, people might find it a little puzzling because, you know, a few minutes ago you were saying, well, any sense of a personal identity evaporated and yet now you just in the last sentence you said I can be selfish and irritating and, and all that stuff and so right. you know the question naturally comes well who is selfish if, if all sense at, of a personal identity has vanished at, at the moment of uh, being selfish there is a perception you could say of an eye uh -huh. underneath that there is no, there is no eye in there but you have to remember that you have to remember the underneath it part I see uh, and, do you, and do you have to remember it through some act of, uh, through some volition through some act of attention or does I, it... I, I, yeah I think so I, I mm -hmm. think that you have to you know usually in my experience the normal uh, way life is lived uh, th this isn't happening the, the, this uh, addictive compulsive behavior. And then when it starts up, it's such a dramatic shift that it's noticed immediately. And um, there's almost no real effort involved in not pursuing it. Mm -hmm. But sometimes the con the con this conditioning is powerful. I mean, it can, it can sort of grab you, grab you, and, and um, it, you, can almost, um, you can almost get lost in it briefly. Uh, I, I would say with a deep awakening that's real, where there's this continuous underlying awareness, 
you don't get lost for long you know and you have the chance to catch it very quickly yeah but there's sometimes a deliberate effort involved in noticing and not buying into it um, so I don't know that I would say there's an eye that's doing it but the programming and the conditioning sure would look like there's an eye because it's like but some of this stuff is physiological yeah it's not sure. it doesn't even have a cognitive component to it at all it's like the body is just reacting Mm-hmm. We're all deeply programmed, every, and you don't wake up enough to completely diffuse the programming. You have to keep working at diffusing it. There's a saying in the Indian literature that, um, you know, talking about conditioning, that a, a sort of a deeply conditioned person is more like, is like stone, and you you can make a mark in the stone, and and mm-hmm. and the mark stays there. You know, and then and then less conditioned, maybe you're like sand. So you, you make a mark, and the the you know it, it goes away pretty quickly. Right. Less less conditioned is like water. Less conditioned is like air. Right. Right. And right. and extending that analogy, it's interesting to note that you know you can make deeper marks in softer substances, mm. uh, which would to mean you could have actually a richer experience if you're less conditioned, mm-hmm. and, yet, and and fuller experience, and yet it's uh it's not indelible it just sort of dissolves right right it comes and goes very quickly yeah and you know this is uh, there's an interesting um idea that i i mean realizations and revelations continue continuously for me i mean and i think they do for anybody but you know i heard jill taylor talk uh, she had this wonderful video my stroke of insight and right um, at some point she said, you know, feelings normally will come and go in about 90 seconds if you let them. And so, you know, I took this idea and I teach it all the time. And, and uh, you know, if you don't construct a story about it in your head, uh, you know, in other words, blaming somebody else for why you're feeling the way you're feeling, or if you don't feel entitled to feel this way and you don't keep rehashing something that keeps it going, and you don't resist the feeling. You don't suppress it, deny it, ignore it. You just, it comes up, you feel it, and it's gone. Right. And I don't know that I can say it's always 90 seconds, <laughs> 60 seconds, but it doesn't have to be hours, and it doesn't have to be days and years. It can be really very brief. But, yeah, I mean, the more unconditioned this is, this body-mind, um, you know, there's, there's a there's a... There's no buffers. Everything is just immediately felt and experienced, and um, the goal is to not buy into the story that we tell ourselves or the belief that we shouldn't feel something. Yeah. And uh, so as a psychologist, I spend a lot of my time trying to teach these ideas to people. Mm-hmm. And they can get it, and it's, edu- it's an educational process. And with or without awakening, people become much more free and... Uh, Contented, you know, happy, spontaneous, real. I've heard you uh, quote Byron Katie a number of times in your talks, and <clears throat> she, you know, she's that's what she's all about is you know enabling people to not take their thoughts so seriously and to right. turn a, turn around a whatever conviction they cling to and, and right, right. You know, just kind of let go of it. And right, right. I believe that it's, this is a practice that can be taught, and <clears throat> I mean, it's just ob- observing your mind. Yeah, and you can do it anywhere, anytime. Um, you know, certainly silent seating meditation or some other formal practice is, is beneficial, I think. But 
you can do this anywhere, anytime. This is my practice, I guess I would say, if I have a practice now, it's just awareness. Mm-hmm. I sometimes think of uh, this whole thing as being like, you know, you can, you can move a table by pulling any of its legs. And, uh, and like that, you know, you can, there are a number of things you can do which will sort of bring everything else along in your life. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, can, you can learn to change the way you think, like Byron Katie teaches people, and mm-hmm. that, can, that, that changes all kinds mm-hmm. of other things. Or you can sit and meditate, which mm-hmm. is an entirely different process, and yet that changes all kinds of other mm-hmm. things, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, none of these things is mutually exclusive. I mean, you can do several of them, and it's right. like pulling a couple of legs at once on the table. Right, um, and there, there's some kind of affinity that people are just drawn to certain things, and so I encourage people to do what they're drawn to do. Yeah, yeah. For me, um, sitting meditation was a very powerful draw. Uh, yeah, it has been for me, too. I mean, I've been doing it for 40-something years, and it just always felt right to me, and it's always worked, you know, so yeah. what the heck? Why not do it? Yeah. Um, well, but other people, I've met people who, and I'm have very close relationships with people who are, I would say, deeply awake, who've never meditated. Yeah, exactly. And don't have any interest in it and wouldn't do it if you put a gun to their head. Or people like yourself who did it for years, then stopped doing it, and then had an awakening. Right, right, right. You know? <laughs> so you really can't say, you know, get a pat <laughs> formula. There's so many different ways that it That's shows right. up. That's right. There's no... There's no um, uh, there's no formulas, uh, but but it is important to do something. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, somehow you have to, I, you know, the, in the Buddhist tradition, it's important to hear the Dharma. It's important to hear the truth or, or an accurate teaching from somebody who can be that truth, and and then something sinks in somehow, and then and then learning to listen to yourself, and learning to listen to your inner sense of what you need to do, and then. Uh, and to tell the difference between the conditioned, programmed, ego-based beliefs and some other more direct knowing that says, mm-hmm. go do this. There's a verse in the Gita which goes, um, because one can perform it, one's own dharma, though lesser in merit, is better than the dharma of another. Better is death in one's own dharma. The dharma of another brings danger. And uh, Right. It's a good one on this point because, I mean, you can hear somebody talking about their practice or what works for them, and you can think, okay, I'm going to try to do that. And then you can end up, end up being totally frustrated because right. it's, not, it's not appropriate for you and it's not going to work for you. And, you know, maybe it'll work for you 10 years down the line, but right now something else is actually going to be much more, you know, effective. Absolutely. That's absolutely the truth. I mean, that's why, you know, it's like just because, first off, you don't really know what worked even for you. Right. It seems like certain things work, but you don't know for sure. But you know, it's it's really hard to tell other people what they should be doing. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I can suggest things that work for me and that I've seen work for other people, and you can try it out and see if it helps you. But it's really empirical, and it's learning to trust some inner knowing in you that says you need to do this or do that. Yeah, it's very true. I mean, you know, I taught TM for 25 years, and for much of that time, my attitude was, well, this is the best thing, and this is more effective than everything else, and everybody mm-hmm. should really be doing this, and if they're not doing this, they're kind of like, you know, wasting their time or whatever. Right. And, <laughs> the, and right. I, I have a completely opposite attitude now. I, I just sort of feel like, who am I to say what's, what's right for people? If they want to chant Hare Krishna or be a fundamentalist Christian or whatever they want to do, that's perfect for them at that time and if it isn't they'll get interested in something else that's such a 
easier way to be in the world, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, to not feel like you're supposed to know what everybody else needs. <laughs> <laughs> what a relief. Yeah. And then, you know, you, that this, any sense of judgment goes away, too. But, yeah, until this thing, this last thing in 2002 happened to me, I thought you had to be a Zen Buddhist. And, you know, you had mm -hmm. to do Zazen, sitting meditation, go to retreats, and probably be a monastic. And yeah. You know, because that seemed to be what had worked for me. And, oh, none of that's true. I'm talking about, uh, um, go ahead. No, I'd, I'd say, unless it is for you. Yeah, yeah. And if it's exactly. true for you, then that's what you got to do. But that's not going to be true for hardly anybody. Remember, Sly and the Family Stone, different strokes for different folks. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> um, I was thinking about your 2002 thing, and would it be fair to say, would this be an accurate way of describing what happened, which was that before that juncture point, uh, your predominant you know, identity was Michael Hall, individual, with mm -hmm. occasional glimpses of universality. Right, right. And then what happened was when the shift happened, your predominant identity was universality with occasional upcroppings of Michael Hall. Yeah, you know? yeah, that's a good description. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way, but that's that's absolutely right. And the universality never really goes away. I mean, it, it might be less prominent at different times, but it's always there. Yeah. And it's and it, there's something very deeply biological about it. I, I don't know what, but it's ex everything just feels different. Being mm -hmm. in this body, being everything is just different in some fundamental way. I mean, when this happened, I was, you know, you just blurred all these things out that most people don't want to hear. But one of the things I blurred out was that my DNA is different. It was like, it and I, be. I, I, I think it has to be. Something is really deeply biological about it. Uh, well, you know, I mean, mind and body are interrelated, and I bet you if you had been really thoroughly studied in every way before that awakening, and now you're really thoroughly studied now, they'd mm -hmm. see all kinds of differences in your right. brain waves, and your blood chemistry, and all kinds of I, things. I really think so. In fact, here, one of my own observations here of mine was, you know, that period between what I would say was the first real awakening in like 82, and this continuous thing in 2002 that whole period I now look at as I think it's what John of the Cross meant by the dark night mm -hmm. and it's uh, or another way, way of saying it is it's a period from the first experiential awareness of the kingdom of heaven uh, and the continuous dwelling in it and you know so what happens is you, you, you have this sudden awareness of the presence of God in all things and then, of course, that leaves, and you go back to being you, and you try to do what you thought worked to get you there to begin with, and it never works because it wasn't you that did it. And then you go through this long, tedious, difficult process of trying to get back to the Garden of Eden, and it, nothing works. And uh, But I think, I think that's what he meant by the dark night, and I also think that that whole process is a biological transformation yeah yeah it has to go its own way in its own time and can't really probably be hurried very much and you don't know that's what's going on at the time I sure didn't know I thought nothing was happening I was just stuck and that was the end of it but I'd now say there was this deep transformation that was going on that whole time uh, kind of of its own just just working its way through this biological body, mind, etheric, psychic, physical, emotional body. And um, once think, it was done, it was done. 
I think there's really something to that. I mean, and not only on levels that, you know, modern neurophysiologists could measure, but also, you know, all the, all the traditional esoteric stuff, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Ch chakras and shishumna and all that mm -hmm, stuff. I, I, I'm mm -hmm. sure that there's all kinds of nadis being right. cleared and all right. that kind of business. Right, it's just right. another way of explaining it. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I still went back and certainly I read the Kundalini literature and Kundalini awakenings. And, you know, I think there's a lot to all this. It's, this is deeply, all I can say is this is deeply biological. This is not just a shift in perspective, This, although it's certainly that. You can't go back if you tried. I mean, yeah. something is something is just, uh, I don't know, a hole has been created or burned out or disappeared or something. Body is the temple of the soul. Yeah. And, if, and I think this dark night thing is interesting. I was thinking about that perhaps as, during the week as I was listening to you. Um, it's uh, different for different people, you know, and it's, it's like we were saying with practices, one shouldn't jump to the conclusion that one's own dark night has to be the same as right. St. John of the Cross or right. something. Um, right, right, Everybody's going to go through different stuff, but I mean, what's, what's happening is there's this inner transformation, mm. and depending on what kind of garbage you have in your house, <laughs> it's going to look different, you know, for different right. people. Some Absolutely. people might get really crazy, some people might get depressed, some people right. might... All kinds of things. Some people might become megalomane maniacal. Yes. Um, you know. It's interesting. I, I see more and more the kinds of psychological problems, and especially these these kind of radical um, falling apart of people's lives. You know that I'm seeing. I'm getting emails from all over the world about people who are on this path and have had some kind of glimpse and. <clears throat> it seems like their life is completely falling apart. They can't go to work, and they don't want to go to work, and their relationships are... I see all of that as part of this dark night now. It's just a some kind of radical reorienting of yeah. this whole um, being that um, is tough. And, and, you know, I guess I would say for me, I felt... I, I had minor versions of that, but I didn't seem to have to become homeless, and, and that's, you know... I guess that's good, but I have seen people who did become homeless, and mm -hmm. uh, that's just part of the the process. That they, you know, there's some willingness to ride this out wherever it takes you. Yeah, and uh, and not everybody has the sort of the liberty to sort of sit on a park bench like no. Eckhart Tolle. You know, <laughs> some right. people have right. kids kids to feed and stuff like that. But well, that I, was uh, that was me. Yeah. Yeah. I think there are things you can do though to um, ameliorate it. I mean, you know, there. Are purificatory things there's yoga there's dietary things there's all sorts of things you can do to sort of because uh, as you're saying it's a physical physiological transformation taking yeah. place and yeah. there's stuff you can do to facilitate and smooth that out i mean ayurveda all kinds of things yeah i think i think i i i help people do that in my office all the time it's like and you know it's um but for people who are outside of any tradition and don't have any kind of teacher and oh, yeah. are really on their own it can look really messy uh, yeah well, you you talked about Suzanne Siegel. I mean, you know, I both have read her book. I mean, she had had a tradition, but she kind of walked away from it, and then mm -hmm. had this sudden awakening and didn't know what the heck had happened to her, and right. lived in fear for ten years. Right. <laughs> that's a that's a wonderful book and a great story, and kind of an appalling indictment of a lot of psychotherapy. Also, mm, uh, yeah. was a psychotherapist. I read that book and kept cringing the whole time, but at the same time, I couldn't put it down, and thankfully. Uh, um, this guy uh, was editor of Yoga Journal, I guess. Uh, uh, Stephen Bodian. Yeah, Stephen, yeah, Stephen Bodian. Finally. He sent her to Jean Klein. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, look, you know, you've had an awakening. Go talk to this guy. 
Yeah. And I and I immediately had this sense of what Jean Klein probably said to her, which was essentially, your thinking mind, your ego continues after the most radical awakening. You just don't need to take it seriously or pay any attention to it. Yeah. She was also continuously looking back, trying to find that sense of personal identity right. that she felt she had lost. And he right. said, "He said, stop looking back. You know, right. Stop, yeah. stop looking for it. Just stop doing that. You can't go back. Yeah. That's, that's gone. Hmm. Yeah. If you try to go back, you're, you're going to feel, you know, like there's something wrong with you because it's that's gone. The book we're referring to, by the way, for people who are listening to this, is called Collision with the Infinite by Suzanne Siegel. I have a link to it on BatGap.com if you want to check it out. <clears throat> Good one. Uh, there's also been a few interviews I've done with people who had really dramatic Kundalini awakenings. Um, there's one. One is a woman named Sarojini, which you'll find on Batgap, and another is uh, Siddhananda. They both adopted Indian names after they got with their guru. But boy, the stuff they went through. And the first one, Sarojini, she was just like this housewife in Arizona, and she didn't know anything about spirituality. She hadn't ever thought about it, and woke up one morning with this sort of strange energy going on, mm -hmm. and, it, and it just started to go like a volcano. And and she thought she was going crazy, and she started doing research, and she thought she had Kundalini disease when <laughs> when she first when she first looked up the term and right. through all kinds of uh, you know rigmaroles until she kind of sorted out what was going on with her and found a teacher yeah that's that's one thing your website and and similar ones do is, is it makes it possible for people who are out there on their own to really get them a, a much more accurate and broad-based understanding of this whole thing and um, that's a real service that helps a lot of people yeah, and thank thank God for the technology that makes it possible. I mean, obviously there was a time not long ago when, as you said, back in the '60s, you know, what do you do if you're interested in this stuff? Well, there's a few books, but it's hard to find anybody who knows what they're talking about. Yeah. And now it's kind of like spreading all over the place. Oh, it's amazing! Just since the last five, six, seven years, there's an explosion, and it's that's that's great. I I think the only downside to it is, if there is one, is that. Um, I see people who have, a, you know, really in-depth intellectual understanding of it, and can confuse that with the real knowing that's experiential and direct. And um, but you know, that's okay. Well, that's an interesting topic, actually. And I, I heard you just this morning. I was listening to you talking about some guy who pretty much memorized everything there was to know about Buddhism. And, and you mentioned another woman who actually had memorized everything that Adyashanti had ever said <laughs> and felt like she could teach. Right, 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 right. Yeah. I, I met it, her at the end of an Adyashanti retreat I went to. It's like, oh, wait, time out. This <laughs> Channeling Adyashanti is not the same as, as being him. And yeah. It's, like, <laughs> it's a funny thing because I'm going to interview him in August and um, – I, I've listened to like over five days worth of his audios. I have mm -hmm. it all on my iTunes. And yet, if you ask me to summarize what he says, I, I'd be at a loss for words. But actually, while I'm listening to him, it's like every single sentence is, a, is an aha, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like it clicks. He's great. So, yeah. But um, no, but th let's continue on this point for a minute because this whole thing of people kind of, I think it's easy to get an intellectual or intuitive feel for, for this mm -hmm. because, you know, it we're like fish in the ocean, you know, we're surrounded by this water. And so if somebody starts reading these books or listening to these talks, they, 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 they have this kind of aha thing of, yeah, I get it, you know, non-duality, mm -hmm. it makes sense mm -hmm. to me. Mm -hmm. But I think there is a common 
syndrome these days of mistaking that initial sort of intuitive sense for the actual state of realization. Oh. And uh, if a lot of these people had, were to somehow magically step into Ramana Maharshi's body and see through his eyes, they'd suddenly realize, whoa, this is much different than that initial sort of smell of it that I... Absolutely. <laughs> it's to the, 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 real, the real thing is so radically different and more... I don't know, destabilizing, you might say. And then it's, it's just uh, no. Yeah, you can you can read this stuff so much, and I have people I work with and I teach who do. They could they can quote Nisargadatta page and number, and they can you know refer to all these things I've never read. And and when I was going through this process, I didn't read that much. In the Zen tradition, you're not really encouraged to read, and there wasn't that much available anyway, except original sources. And I didn't understand Wei Ning really, or you know, um, you know the fifth, fifth patriarch or something. So um, there wasn't much available, and you weren't encouraged to read. You're encouraged to experience directly for yourself. And now there's so much available that you can almost delude yourself into thinking you don't have to have the personal experience. You can intellectually grasp this stuff. And you can, but that is like you know reading a menu and thinking you you've had lunch. Yeah, it's not the same. Yeah, it's very good. I mean, it's it's really good to draw this distinction. I think between experience and understanding, they're yeah. not the same thing. I mean, they're they're, mm. they're I think there ultimately comes a point at which they merge. Mm. You know, but prior to that point, and that could mean many many years. Uh, they are two different things, and I think both are important. You know, mm -hmm. they, they supplement one another. Yeah, I, I think for me it was the intellectual understanding and the ability to describe it and put it into words came after the experience, and and the reading mostly came after. I started reading all these books because I was curious about how people expressed it, and until but until 2002, I didn't read hardly anything because I, mm -hmm. you know. I just didn't, and there, you know. But now I'm fascinated by how different people express this, and you know, it's it's the intellectual understanding is very useful afterwards. Yeah, uh, it's less useful beforehand. I think it's not. I mean, it's good to have accurate teaching. That's very helpful, but ultimately, you've got to have this inner transformation. I think one of its main values beforehand is as just a sort of a an, an inspiration or a. Yeah you know, a carrot to follow for, <laughs> you that's, know, like, that's right. Th this sounds good. I should go for it. You know, that's, I'd say that's what it was for me is a sense of, you know, this is possible for human beings and it, it may even be possible for me and it's worth taking seriously and, you know, pursuing it. So it's like, good. That's worth doing. Yeah. I mean, it was actually a Zen book, which really got me going. I used to Back in my hippie drug days, I used to read Zen books, and uh, one night I was sitting on my bed, you know, and all my friends had gone home, and I was sitting there on LSD thinking, oh, here, here I am again in this weirdo state, and I picked up Zen Flesh, Zen Bones, you know, and, and was reading this, this little book, and, I, and I, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. I thought, you know, these guys are really serious, and I'm just mm -hmm. screw, screwing around yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. If I keep screwing around like this, I'm going to live a miserable life, so I thought, that's it. I'm going to stop drugs, learn right. meditation. And so it was, it was an inspiration. That's, that's great. That's great. <laughs> and some of those nuggets stick in your mind. You know, I, things I heard in the Zen training, I went through like, you know, well, you know, show me your original face before your parents were born. Some of the Coens or 
or just some things I heard the teachers say or things I read in books. I had no clue what they were. And I would now say even things I heard in church growing up, you know, in the yeah. New Testament, things that Jesus said. I had no idea what it was, but I think at some level it sticks in there and kind of rubs away and irritates and provokes. And I mean, you're not conscious of it, but so there's something to be said for hearing this stuff. Mm -hmm. And and just even if you don't have a clue what it's about, it it seems like it it goes deep inside for for at least some people and just works on you. Yeah, kind of like a little bit of sand makes a yeah. pearl. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Mm hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So uh, so it's been almost ten years since two thousand and two. Um, how would you say your life has changed if any in the last nine years um, you know well, how is it different today than it was you know just after that awakening um, you maybe, know, it's, maybe it's one of these yes no answers where yes it's different in this way but no it's absolutely the same in that way you know uh, on the surface it doesn't look that different you know I, yeah. I still am a psychologist I still own an office building I still am a parent and I still have relationships and, you know, I still work in the same building and live in the same location that I did when this happened. Nothing nothing changed on the surface in a way. Um, I did start eventually trying to convey this stuff as a, as a teacher or something um, because I kept getting people wanting me to do that, so eventually that happened. But um, I would say it, it's more an inner process of, of continuous revelation you know just new realizations and new ways of seeing things just keep coming up mm -hmm. and um, have there been any sort of mega realizations or is it more like just little nuggets just little gems that kind of reveal themselves throughout the day day to day it's it's I, I would say both uh, I mean just recently there's just a sense of um, and some of it's very hard to even put into words but uh, you know, one one idea that just recently occurred is that there's there's everything is programming everything that we normally think and see. And I knew this. I mean, but you know it at different levels. You know it in different ways. It's all programming, and the, you know that none of it needs to be taken the least bit seriously. And I've been even saying this, but you see it in a deeper way sometimes. It just pops into your head, and it's so very clear. Um, Can you give us an example? Well, you know, I would say there's a guy, Bart Marshall, who's a good friend in North Carolina, and Bart had an awake, uh, an initial kind of glimpse when he got blown up in Vietnam by a mortar shell, and and then he was he was um, aware he was he was you know, there were dead bodies around. He was aware that these bodies were just rubber dummies. So just, just there's no animating force in them, and then that gradually over many many years, he had a much deeper awakening after seeing. Um, uh, Harding, I guess, uh, the headless guy, Douglas Harding, Doug, Douglas Harding and um, that, you know, we're all just rubber dummies, you know, uh, that's really all that's here is, is <laughs> a programmed robot. Mm. Uh, it's, it's just another way of saying, you know, this is not to be taken that seriously, you know, mm. whatever comes out of this mouth is, is mostly just programmed nonsense, but, you know, um, and and then you you know it's just the way it is. But you know, there's this other there's this other sense of of a way of being in the world that is totally unconditioned. And uh, so both uh, are un true. Unconditioned. Unconditioned. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, 
so this this spontaneous direct free speaking and acting you know uh, it's called in Zen it's called you call it Wu Wei meaning acting without an actor speaking without a speaker so you you get different ways of seeing it. This underlying realization, I don't know that it changes or deepens, but the ability to articulate it and manifest it in the world and live it out in this body and be, you know, more continuously present, that I think is a progressive thing. Yeah. That um you know, 20 years down the line, I expect will be much deeper than it is right now. I, so I mean, this a real this realization, this uh, this original face or this original seeing is what it is but the ability to embody it and manifest it and especially articulate it and live it out is progressive and it's a it's a progressive deepening and um, you could say it's a progressive disappearing of anything to do with with me but uh-huh. um, so there that just continue I've heard Adyashanti say this too I haven't heard too many people say it but there's just new realizations that occur all the time and and you you realize especially because I'm essentially teaching this all day every day in my office Mm -hmm. Um, I just hear things come out of the mouth that I I realize I couldn't have said not that long ago yeah and uh, that's cool it's interesting it's fun it's hard to articulate it's hard to give you specific examples some of it is stuff that you just you just see more deeply but I, all i can tell you is that it's a progressive thing that goes on forever i guess unless you really get sidetracked and and lose your, you know all sense of what's real yeah or have some brain damage or something yeah 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 you know yeah, yeah but my overt life looks pretty similar i mean mm-hmm. i don't know that i you know, I shaved my head at one point because I didn't have any hair anyway. So, but I mean, it's just like it's like nothing to do with spirituality. Another, I guess, another realization is I quit. I quit wanting to call it spiritual. I, I just this has nothing to do with spirituality, really. This is just seeing things as they are. I mean, why call it spiritual? So, well, that's supposed. I think that's what the word is supposed to connote. But it just has so many, so much I know, baggage. You know? I know. I had people who always had trouble with that, and I don't have any problem with it. I, I came out of a spiritual tradition. And I'm very comfortable with it. But yeah, you know, it's. Uh, if you're gonna use words, you want to use them to communicate. And if if you're gonna use a word which is gonna confuse people because it has so much, so many yeah. connotations yeah. That, that you don't intend, then you might as well right. find better words. Try. Yeah. Right. Right. It's just. It's gradual and progressive, and it's it's a it's a progressive disappearing to everything you ever thought was you. So the very essence of it, the the real the the core of the realization, you don't feel that that can be clarified or stabilized or anything. It just is what it is, or could it be? No, I I I would say both. It 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 is what it is, but there's no doubt it gets stabilized, clarified, deepened embodied manifest the the deepening is the embodiment and the, manif- yeah, the manifestation yeah. of it mm-hmm. um i i'm a, i'm not a big fan of, of pure non-duality you know where you, you I, I call it the cave of non-duality where people just sort of have a non-dual realization and sit there i don't mean to sound overly negative about it but that, that's important but you have to bring this awareness into the world and live it out in daily life and and express it behaviorally and verbally and in ways that people can understand and appreciate and that's part of it yeah i totally agree it's this this is a kind of a perennial theme in these interviews because i keep hitting on that point you know where (laughs) 
uh, people just sort of they glom on to the to the absolute view and then and then just tend to right. dismiss all the right. relative considerations you know right you can i mean of course in zen being a mahayana buddhist tradition i mean uh you know there's there's part of the training program you know it's like and this is a maybe a slight concern is that people have these non-dual realizations and think they've got it but if you're in a tradition or you have a teacher of some kind you realize okay that's great but what's next and it's embodiment it's bringing the the non-dual into the dual yeah and uh to the point eventually they both disappear and then there's just this but these are like you could say stages of of enlightenment or awakening that uh, you know people say there are no stages i, I don't understand that there of course there's stages there there's degrees of depth and, and mainly what that means is the ability to embody and manifest it so. I think again they're speaking from the absolute view when right. they say there are no stages. On some I, level, that's true. Yeah, that's true at one level. You know, but if that's I, but I you gotta, yeah. But <laughs> still, you know, uh, you know, it's like in the ten ox herding pictures. I, I was know, just gonna mention those actually. You know, and um, you know, the, it's only in the last X number of years that I've had a, a sense of this tenth picture. You know, walking through the marketplace, bare-chested, mud-caked, this guy, this just, just here. But he's in the marketplace. He's not in a cave. He's not dwelling in bliss. You know, he's he's alive and well in the presence of other beings and making some kind of mark and impact and just acting freely undisturbed. Mm -hmm. And uh, it has to be brought into the world. That's yeah. it. Um, you were talking. You've been talking about how you know the the embodiment and the the evolution of it is seen in terms of ability to express it mm -hmm. uh, which is to a certain extent a, an intellectual intellectual verbal kind of thing mm -hmm. how, how about other dimensions such as emotional or perceptual I mean, mm -hmm. how have how have those been growing if, if at all in your life yeah i would say one of the main area of growth there is in relationships you know mm -hmm. and um primary romantic relationships like with a woman you know where you know, um, old patterns that, that I really didn't think would still be there or still come up do sometimes come up, you know, feeling, you know, taking something personally, getting hurt, feeling not valued. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to say it with a straight face, but it feels very real at the time. Yeah. So, you know, there's something very valuable. I mean, relationship can be a real practice if you take it seriously and are willing to not get totally lost in your own reactions and not blame your reactions on somebody else, but just see it as your, your own conditioning that just some of it is, uh, you know, is very deep and very hard to get at unless you're very intimately connected with another human being, you know, and the people who you might say trigger this stuff in me, I value because I wouldn't I wouldn't see it otherwise. It wouldn't come up. Yeah. So if you had a very say pleasant, comfortable relationship or job or you know, there's a lot of nice things about that. But on the other hand, uh, you may not become aware of some very rough edges in you that are still there uh, and wouldn't get activated without somebody challenging you or pushing you or yeah. So, did you, ever, did you ever read Carlos Castaneda's books? Mm -hmm. Sure. Remember the, the remember the the petty tyrant. Yeah. Theme? Yeah. 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 And it, I I just I don't get the idea that any of us ever get beyond this stuff completely. I don't think I don't think that's 
realistic. I think the goal is to embrace this and welcome these challenges that come along. It, it can be physical health, although I've been healthy. It could be chronic pain. It could. For me, it's been. It seems like it's been relationships. Um, it's also uh, running and owning a business, you know, and mm-hmm. um, a lot of psychotherapists don't like to be business people, but it's always been interesting to me, and I do that. I own a big uh, building, and, and you know, it's, it's been a real interesting challenge to learn to to deal with people in outside of a therapeutic context, you know, who challenge me and push me and provoke me, and and notice how undisturbed mostly I am and how much more skillful and automatic and easy it is to just deal with things that I know I could not possibly have done in the past. I see this also in terms of honestly electronic gadgets just like in software. I wouldn't have even tried to do things like this 10 years ago. Now I I enjoy the challenge of just you know just being present actually reading the directions (laughs) doing what it says to do you know not feeling like I should know how to do it because I'm just so bright or something without reading the directions, just surrendering to what is real moment to moment and you know, cooking. I never tried to cook before and things that, you know, I just avoided in life. I didn't realize it maybe, but I now see that I just avoided, you know, repairs, home repairs, mm-hmm. like stuff I just go and do. I read the directions, I follow them and I do it. I would never have done that stuff 10 years ago. That's cool. I'm glad I asked you that question because I think I don't hear people say this kind of thing too often, and it's I think it's very useful for people to hear. You know, mm-hmm. that, that um, as a because sometimes you actually have the impression of spiritual people, so to speak, or awakened people that they're going to become more otherworldly, you know, le- less involved mm-hmm. in some way. They're going to have to simplify their life. Uh, and 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 can't deal with a lot of stuff. And what you're saying is just the opposite, which I think is oh, yeah. a br- kind of a breath of fresh air. Just the opposite for me. It's like, and I know people going through the kind of, that kind of stage that you described, but you want to keep going through that and past that. And I mean, this is the embodiment. This is the manifestation. You know. Yeah. I well, see actually, something. as you say, it is, it is a stage, and I shouldn't belittle it because it might be a very important stage right. for a certain person to just really chill for a while and mm-hmm. not have a lot coming at them. Right. You know, I mean, I think there is a value to monastic life. For right. Instance, right. Know? Yeah, um, but eventually, you want to keep going, so to speak, further. You know, just keep keep at it, and what then happens is. I, th- I think a vastly more comfortable and skillful and enjoyable interaction with everything. Mm-hmm. Everything that happens, and you don't need to avoid anything. It's like everything is just this. Yeah, there's a, another verse in the Gita, which is the uh, Yoga Star Kuru Kamani, which means established in being or yoga, perform action. You know, and, the, and obviously in, in the context of that, um, Arjuna is being asked to go out and fight a battle, which is a pretty challenging situation. Mm-hmm. But, but he's being told first to get established in, in you know, the absolute or in the self. Or mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. And then bring this understanding into the world. Yeah. Manifest it in this body and this mind, helping people who are suffering, having compassion, you know, doing what you can do. Mm-hmm. Um, What's your sense of uh, God? What's your feeling of for God, or who God is, or what God is, or your orientation to God? Well, God is a word I would never have used until 2002, and then I get I was totally comfortable with with God. Uh, God is, I mean, as I understand it, 
it's not an entity it's nothing outside of you or me or this it's it's you could say it's the same thing as mind with a capital M or no mind or um, it's all that is and all that isn't and uh, any definition description quality is not it and so normally you hear people talk about God and what they're talking about is their projections their programming their conditioned beliefs and um, you know the idea that God has opinions or <laughs> right. feelings God, or God hates homosexuals right. or, <laughs> or would vote for somebody it's, <laughs> it's, beyond, it's beyond belief it's just it's hysterically funny God is not a registered anything yeah. <laughs> so that's funny <laughs> anything you say about it isn't it yeah, that's a good point. I sort of think of God <laughs> as just, uh, I mean, whatever, whatever you look at from the, you know, Hubble telescope photos down to microscopic things, there's like this fascinating intelligence that seems mm -hmm. to be governing yeah. everything, expressed yeah. in everything. You know, it's like so amazing the way everything works. I mean, look at the the eye of a fly and how that works and, and that, mm -hmm. didn't just, that didn't just happen through a bunch of billiard balls mm -hmm, mm -hmm. running into each other randomly mm -hmm. yeah I, 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 I'm very comfortable with that kind of thinking there, it's almost like there's something that cannot be described that is animating everything Yeah. and, um, and you are that Exactly, which is what makes it a relevant point and not just an interesting philosophical thing. Right, is that right. if you if you are that, how deeply can you know that you are that or experience yes. that you are that? How fully, you know? Right. And we see some of these really great saints who seem to be they say God realized, you know, who have merged with God so fully and so consciously. That that's an interesting kind of uh, point on the horizon that you know we might. Yeah, I, I like. I just like to see them uh, have a job. Yeah, well, some of them have, <laughs> some of them bear pretty, yeah, some of them don't, yeah. like Ananda Maima or whatever, who and, and, you know, practically had to be fed, you know, but <laughs> some of them bear fairly heavy burdens of responsibility. Right, right. So I, I, I just like, I like the integration of this awareness into ordinary life. Yeah, mm -hmm. Daily life is the way, you know. Um, yeah. Ordinary, being ordinary is, is our true nature, you know, and uh, nothing special, nothing different or outside, just this as it is. Being yourself, you know. Yeah, true. And I mean, obviously, what you're implying is that some of the people I've just alluded to have been <laughs> kind of glorified and deified. I, and I, I don't know, but may, maybe. But it's like, yeah, for ordin for all, all of us, like ordinary people, uh, living your real life with presence and gratitude, and and just here, just now, feeding the kids, you know, cleaning up the dishes, you know, running errands, but. There's a way of doing all these things that reveals, you might say, the presence of God in all of it. Yep. And uh, it's an, that's an inner perceptual uh, shift that allows for that to happen. Uh, this is it. This is heaven on earth right here, right now, just like it is. And seeing this and living it and manifesting and embodying it and then interacting with everything, you know, is, is the way, I think. Yeah. Daily life. 
have you noticed a big um, improvement in your effectiveness with your clients? Oh, yeah. Your, your, I guess you call them clients. Yeah, um, clients, yeah. Since your shift? <clears throat> I mean, and actually, has your, has your practice become a lot more popular because word of mouth, hey, this Michael guy really has, a, you know, has an effect? Yeah, I mean, I, I was all, but, you know, I, you know, I look back on that and I say, I've seen people, I have both friends and clients I've seen long before and long after this shift. And uh, some of them point out there's a lot more continuity than I would see. It, to me, it seemed very discontinuous before and after. I mean, but, you seem like the same guy, basically. Yeah, I was saying yeah. similar things. But, you know, I had these awakening things and going back to the early 80s. So I think the the shift in a behavioral sense was much more gradual. It yeah. seemed internally like a radical before and after in 2002. But... Um, I think it was integrating and processing and manifesting slowly during that whole period of time. Um, but yeah, I, I'd say I'm, I sense I'm vastly more effective as a, as a therapist. But I, I, I always felt like I was pretty effective, and I had, a, you know, I never had an opening in private practice, and um, you know, basically, still don't, haven't taken hardly any new people unless they're deeply immersed in this spiritual path and then, then I will see them because yeah. I, I like and, and I'd say the the therapy I do although I still see people I never talk about spiritual anything or waking or anything and I just but the way I can see their problems is to, and help them with it is deeply affected by this awakening thing that I've gone through and the ability to teach aspects of it that are liberating to people like to, to not take things personally for example and yeah. It's like you're functioning from a subtler level, sort of. I it's, it seems like you just see what's in front of you. Yeah. Uh, you're you're not like you talked about earlier today. You're not occluded. It's just what is in front of you is just revealed. It's it's mm -hmm. obvious. It just jumps out at you. So that no makes longer, you no longer through a glass darkly. <laughs> right. Right. And so you know I don't have ideas about how to treat people. I just interact with them, and what needs to happen pretty much happens of its own. But yeah, it's vastly more enjoyable, less difficult. Do you find it more enjoyable to deal with the people who, you know, really have a spiritual, so there's that word again, but that kind of inclination? Yeah, yeah. Uh, as compared with the people who are just kind of totally messed up and not really it, interested in this kind you of You know, thing? it's very funny. I mean, Binghamton, where I live, is an old manufacturing town that's been on hard economic times and... Um, there's a lot of people here who've never heard of Buddhism or meditation or anything else, and I've seen a lot of them. And in other words, they don't have any preconceptions. Their glass is totally empty. I pour something in, and they get it. Hmm. Uh, they're transformed. And wow. um, it's almost just, like the just through talking to you. You don't you don't send them home with prescriptions to try yeah. this or do that. Just, well, I just tell them. I just tell them the truth. And yeah. and and. <clears throat> because they don't have, they don't come in with all these um, ideas, you know, about what Nisargadatta said and so forth. <laughs> then they, they're just, they can be transformed sometimes like that. Hmm. It's like amazing. And then some of the most difficult, recalcitrant, stubborn, and, and in a way hopeless people I've ever dealt with are the ones who are convinced they know everything about spirituality. Yeah. And I feel like I just have to beat them senseless to get them to stop. <laughs> doing that and yeah. uh, you know sometimes they're willing sometimes they're not but so it's unpredictable yeah mm -hmm. so people who have heard me talk and like what they heard me say those are good people I like to work with yeah but you know the people who've been steeped in 
some version of spirituality and I get those too for 30 years um, and, and just have a whole bunch of beliefs and convictions and ideas based on what they read and intellectually understood I'd rather take a bricklayer yeah, yeah. A farmer and uh, start from scratch maybe it wasn't a coincidence that most of Christ's disciples were like fishermen and things I, that's right that's right yeah. he didn't get the intelligentsia yeah you know, he got the outcasts, the people who had nothing, and were both probably somewhat desperate and totally open. Mm -hmm. It's very, very interesting. People who um, get it are sometimes not the ones you would think. Yeah. Do you ever uh, deal with professionally with people over the phone or Skype or just yeah. in your office? Both. Yeah, I do Skype. I've had people around the world who, who I Skype with, and I do... I, I've always done some phone work, and, and I see people in my office, and, you know, um, I, I've done a lot of teaching in, the, in Binghamton and around Ithaca and other areas in New York and around the country, but um, now I'm trying to downsize. I'm trying to, you know, reduce the size of my practice and eventually liberate some time and energy because, you know, I've, I've nearly finished a book I want to publish, and there's, there's a lot of teaching stuff I want to do, a lot of writing I want to do, and um, yeah, I was actually going to ask you that, whether if you could do so, you would actually just, you know, not have a practice and just devote yourself fully to writing and, and doing satsangs and stuff like that. <laughs> well, th yes and no. I mean, I haven't done that, so therefore I wouldn't do it, you know. Yeah. I think you do it when, you, when it's right. But, and the teaching in my office has been invaluable to me in learning how to convey it. Right. I mean, it's like, it's just been a wonderful learning experience in terms of, you know what works, what doesn't work, how to convey it, how you know how to get it across to people. So it's like I feel like my ability to convey it has been infinitely deepened by just staying in my office and trying to communicate with ordinary people about this awareness. Mm -hmm. So, but I also feel like that's coming to an end. That hmm. that's been a very valuable process. But I, I feel like at this point I need to do more like maybe what Scott Kelby is doing or. Yeah. For other people who well, he's a lawyer. He spends most of his day practicing law. You know? Well, I didn't, I didn't even know that. But it's like yeah. there's nothing wrong with living your real life exactly as it is. And for me, it's been easy to bring this awareness into my 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 work because because I do psychotherapy and um, so I, I want to convey to other therapists and to human just ordinary people, you know, the the realizations that come out of this this apply I call it applied awareness, you know, like. You know, when you see duality from the aspect of non-duality, what does that look like in daily life? And how do you live your life in a way that's more skillful and less stressful and, you know, and is more enjoyable for everyone? Mm -hmm. And that can be taught. I mean, I, I really, I do this all the time. So I want to spend more time trying to convey this to a broader audience because I just think this is, it's just very useful. And yeah, yeah if I were an artist, I mean, it would be manifesting in my art. If I were... Mm -hmm. A motorcycle racer it'd become out there but you know I'm a psychologist so it comes out that way yeah no, that's a blessing I mean it's a, it's a I think it's really cool that you have a profession that segues so nicely with mm -hmm. you know yeah with what with your passion it's very natural very yeah. natural and then you know when I, I've gone to retreats like with Ajashanti or I hear you know I look at Edgar Tolley's DVDs I mean the questions people ask these guys are always or Byron Katie they're always deeply personal, emotional, psychological type questions. Yeah. You know, how do I deal with 
depression, how do I deal with chronic pain, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I have rage reactions or I have addictions or, I mean, it's always what comes up. This is, this is the real hunger in the world and so this can be addressed. Maybe the whole world is going through a dark night of the soul right now. And well, that's a good, yeah, that's a good way of saying it. I think yeah. I think that's a very useful perspective. Yeah, I mean, that, there does seem to be a quickening, you know, of uh, awakening mm. and, and all, and it, I think correspondingly, there's a lot of stuff happening. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot. I of mean, there's always been a lot of stuff happening. World War Two and World War One were no picnic, but yeah. uh, but there does seem to be some intensification or acceleration going on these days. You know, I had a hard time. I didn't know for sure if, if I bought that for a long time. I, mm -hmm. I had people tell me that, and I heard people say it that I trusted, and and now I see. I I, I do believe that. I I think that's absolutely real. I get emails all the time from people all over the world who have clearly had some kind of awakening experience and don't know what is next or what to do. Yeah. And I don't know that this was always happening. I doubt it. Uh, I don't I don't think so. I think it's accelerating as far as yeah. I can tell. I mean, neither of us is in a position to say, you know, statistically yeah. or scientifically, but it sure seems that way. I think so. I'm beginning to think so. Yeah. And, and and the earth changes are very interesting and Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which you know is all cause for optimism, and as far as you know where where the planet is headed, you know maybe maybe all these predictions of a, a new age and so on will will pan out. Well, I think I think people have to grasp that there's a deconstruction process that has to go on, and it can look kind of messy on the outside and feel pretty messy inside. Mm -hmm. uh, Suzanne Siegel being one example of it, but yeah, uh, there are many, and. Um, yeah, that doesn't have to be a bad thing, although it can certainly be confusing, and it can be very helpful to either be part of a tradition and a community or to have someone you can talk to or read who can help you navigate that mm -hmm. and not just freak out. So There's a term in physics called phase transition where a, sta uh, a thing goes from one state to another right, state, right. and on the, on the junction point of the, of the transition, there's a lot of turbulence that yeah. takes place, you know, and then it kind of smooths out again. That's a great phrase. I, I avoided physics my whole life, and it's one of those things I always avoided, and I, I might be able to do now. <laughs> but that's a great term. There was a book I read in graduate school called The Structure of Scientific Revolution. Oh, yeah, Thomas Kuhn. I read Thomas that. Kuhn. Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful book. And uh, he talked about paradigm shifts right. and normal science and extraordinary science. And I, you know, I think in a way you could say this is a paradigm shift or just a mm. whole a completely different way of seeing things. Big one. A big one, yeah. Yeah. Huh. Well, I, I suppose another way of looking at it is if we think of, you know, like you said earlier with the guy in Vietnam, the people died and they we're all just rubber dummies, you know. Mm -hmm. if, we think, if we think of ourselves as sort of being cells in a larger body, you know, the body of humanity, collective consciousness, then all these, all these cells are kind of waking up and that would, mm -hmm. that would perhaps suggest that the whole body is, is waking up, you know, as so many right. of its cells do. Right, and the body is everything. Yeah, and I mean there are also examples in science of where a real small percentage of a system governs or influences the whole system in a very pivotal sort of way, like about 1% of the cells in the heart are called the pacemaker cells, and they mm -hmm. regulate the beating of the whole heart. So, mm -hmm. you know, even a small, uh, I think it was Margaret Mead or somebody that said that, you know, big changes always happen with a very small group of committed people. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the fact that more and more people seem to be undergoing this awakening could could really have a, a pivotal effect on the whole 
I do think that I had this awareness that just popped into my head after this happened to me that uh, every human being who somehow goes through this awakening makes it a little bit easier for everyone else. Yeah. Um, that's, you know, the Buddha himself said, is supposedly, when I awakened, all beings awakened with me. Mm-hmm. And, of course, when Jesus, Jesus says, you know, I, I forgive the sins of the world. And th- these are similar awarenesses that, that um, somehow, I mean, no, we're so interconnected. We're, we're the same. We're our one. We're one thing and one beating, pulsing, you know. Organism. Organism and... Or like a big jellyfish. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. When any one person gets a little bit more of a uh, ability to see what's real, it does in some some way make it a little bit easier for everyone else. And if that's happening all over the place, that's a big deal. Yeah, I mean, there's also that hundredth monkey story. You've probably heard that one, right? Mm-hmm. A certain number of monkeys start washing their coconuts on some other island, and right. it's, and it's, as soon as it reaches a certain critical mass, then all the monkeys on completely unconnected right. islands right. Be, right. learn the same trick, you know? Yeah, there's some energetic <laughs> something resonance that goes on that's very yeah, yeah, very powerful. Yeah, cool. Well, we could probably keep going on like this all day, but um, is there anything that, you know, has been sort of in the back of your mind or that you customarily like to say to people that we haven't touched upon? You know, when you ask that question, what occurs is I I feel like saying to people, have faith in your ability to realize this truth directly for yourself. Uh, It's inherent. We all are this and just, you know, it's worth it. And that's, that's it keep pushing listening to talks like this and reading the books well some of the books you mentioned on your website i i i bought two of the books you you have on your website that i hadn't read uh-huh. uh like the one by donna gorell especially perfect oh, right, madness yeah. and interesting huh? a very interesting book and uh i mean just just continuing to expose yourself to this kind of stuff loosens things up so yeah that's that's what i would say yeah, there's a saying, you know, that to which you give your attention grows stronger in your life. Mm-hmm. And that's actually one thing I liked about what I was hearing you, you know, when I was listening to your talks during the week. You were saying how, you know, you can kind of, you know, fan the flames. Mm-hmm. You know, what was those things? Bellows, they call them. You, know, yeah, you, yeah, you yeah. can fan the, fl- you can brighten the fire, right. or you can be throwing water on it, you know, and right. dampen it. But it definitely right. makes a difference if you Absolutely. if you put your attention in these this area. Absolutely, yeah. Yep, good, yes. Have faith that you can manifest and live this and realize this in this body, in this lifetime, and do what you can that makes sense to you to do that. And it doesn't matter your age or anything. I mean, when Shanti was here a month ago, a guy got up to the microphone, and he practically had tears in his eyes because he had heard Osho say something about how you really have to get this at a young age or you're not going to get it all because you become too set in your ways later on. Mm. And Adyashanti's answer was, well, I totally disagree with that. You know, I've seen no. so, many, so many examples to the contrary. So it, Absolutely. Doesn't, it doesn't matter, you know. No, I, I mean, there's, uh, I, I've heard an American teacher is now deceased say, if you don't get it by your mid-30s, you're not going to get it. Uh, not true. Yeah. I mean, this this happened to me when I was 56 or something. and. You know, it, uh, age has nothing to do with it. Yeah. At anyone, at any moment, it's just it's just a ceasing, and it can happen to anyone. If you're alive and your nervous system is relatively intact, and maybe if it isn't, yeah, it can, it it can and does happen. Yep. Good. Well, good. So that's an optimistic note to end on, I suppose. Uh, 
<laughs> so thanks, Michael. This has been Thank great. Thank you. It's been fun. I enjoyed talking to you. Thank you very much. Yeah, me too. Um, so let me just wrap up by uh, telling people that um, you've been listening to an interview with Michael Hall on Buddha at the Gas Pump. Um, depending on you, you may not have discovered bat da, excuse me batgap.com which is an acronym for Buddha the gap, gas pump that's b a t g a p uh, but if not go there and you'll see all the interviews I've done archived as well as ones that I have you know continue to do and you can sign up for an email notification every time I put up a new one you'll get an email uh, there's a discussion group there where people get into big debates over all these things. <laughs> get into that if you want to. And there's also a podcast. Some people don't like to sit in front of their computers, but they listen while they commute and things like that. So you can click on a link and, mm -hmm. and get a podcast and put it on your iPod. So that's it. Uh, next week, uh, next interview is with a very fascinating gentleman uh, named Radhanath Swami. Um, who ha has written a book called The Journey Home, which I, I read back in January, and I loved it so much I've been telling people about it ever since. It's, it, it, it almost eclipses Autobiography of a Yogi in terms of being a fascinating story of a person's spiritual adventure. So that'll be the next interview, and uh, we will see you then. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.